I was born in Mumbai and I moved to Austin in 2008. I met my then girlfriend and now wife in this beautiful city as well. I lived here for 6 years and we both moved to Seattle for some opportunities that were presented to us. After 2 years of living in Seattle, we found out that Austin is our true home. The things we missed the most were obviously the food, you hear that a lot, and most importantly the people and their focus on quality of life. My name is Himanshu and this is I love you so much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga, and I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Ladybird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. Bart Willis, co-owner of Southside Tattoo, has spent more than 25 years creating stunning artwork on his customers' bodies. He talks to us today about how he perfected his craft and why Austin has such a thriving tattoo scene. Michelle Breyer, the co-founder of NaturallyCurly.com, talks about her book, The Curl Revolution, which issues straighteners for natural texture and brings together advice and inspiration from her thriving curl community. Local foodie Peter Sai joins us to talk about the brand new H Mart, one of the country's biggest and best-known Asian grocers, which just opened up in Austin. And we'll conclude with the toast, a set of recommendations of things we feel you should be checking out right now. Let's start with Bart Willis, who studies the art of ancient tattooing to inform his work today. Bart Willis, thank you so much for coming to the Statesman Studio. My pleasure. Hello. So you have a tattoo shop not very far from here. I do. Can right. you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Because you are not from Austin. I am not from Austin, but I've been here for 28 years. In my time in Austin, I have, I, uh, I started tattooing, which was 25 years ago, and um, in this long, amazing path that I've been on, uh, 15 years ago, we wound up down on South Congress Avenue. But you came to Austin to be a rock and roll star. That's what I say, tongue in cheek. I was actually a blues and country guy, of oh, course, but but I just tell people it was okay. a rock star because that just. Sounds good. Well, in full disclosure, way back in the day, uh, Bart and my ex-husband Ian were in a band together in Canada. We were, which is how we originally met. Um, but then I, I met you and, and found out about your tattoo art, and just really grew to love the space that you've created Thank there you. on South Congress, right next to the Continental Club. Yes. And you've just you've seen the city change a lot while you've been there. I think you've seen tattooing change a lot <laughs> since you've been there. And so I just want to find out a little bit about you know what maybe the landscape was like when you first opened it, and and how things have evolved. Oh, I could go back just a, little, a few more, a few years before that. Twenty uh, five years ago, um, on right where Docks was, where there's a, there's a big hole in the ground now. Used to be Docks. Used to be Docks. Uh, actually, before it was Docks. Well, it was Docks, but it was an actual service station then. Um, and we had a rehearsal studio down there, Austin Rehearsal Complex, which was Rock and Roll Central in town. It was the only rehearsal space in town, and so at that point in time, gosh. What was the Continental Club was down there, and that was honestly that was it. Well, wow. the San Jose, no, the Austin Motel was there, but it was kind of a by the hourish, yes, or by the week kind of. Part is being very polite about how he's describing how so, South Congress was. South Congress had a reputation. <laughs> yeah, I'll just, like a quick little uh, story. At one point, my 
my mother, my aunt and uncle, and my grandmother were coming to visit, and they wanted, and I lived just in Travis Heights. Not this gets the place close to you, so I said, "Oh, the Austin Motel would be great." So my uncle rents a Lincoln Town car, and we're sitting. Uh, my, he and I are in the Austin Motel trying to check in, which was a challenge enough. And <laughs> and the two squad cars come rolling up, and they see this Lincoln Town car <laughs> with <laughs> with all these old people in it, and they uh, they just said, you're, "You're not planning on staying here, are you?" And <laughs> they said, "No." And they said, "Well, Embassy Suites is right down the hill." And so they basically. <laughs> Ran him off, so that just kind of paints a picture of what the neighborhood was like. Uh, and when we had when we moved into the space next to the Continental Club, uh, fifteen years ago, it, it the writing was kind of on the wall. Guerrero's was down there, and of course the street with Lucy in disguise and mm-hmm. Yard Dog and well, formerly Uncommon Objects mm-hmm. that had been there forever. But but yeah, the word Joseph's it was a tire place, it was hookers, it was drugs, wow. it was a uh, it was a little seedy. And so, at what point during this journey did you start <coughs> tattooing? Or learning that was about twenty five years ago. Wow! With uh, ironically, and you might not know this, um, the fellow that taught me to tattoo uh, was a big fan of your uh, new your ex husband in Calgary as oh, well. Oh, really? <laughs> it's a small little world. It is a small little world. Well, and and yeah. now you're passing it on. You have a daughter who is a tattoo artist as well, I and do. she started apprenticing with you when she was still in high school, she, maybe even earlier. She, but she, yeah, yeah, she's well. He's, she started working in the shop when she was about 12. Of course, she grew up around it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, when she was 12, she started working in the shop in summers. That was her summer job. And then when she graduated at 18, she started her full-fledged apprenticeship. And, and now she lives up in Haida Gwaii, up in, off, way off the west coast of Canada. So when you first started tattooing, you know, not only was South Congress different, I mean, tattooing was different. At a certain, you know, tattooing has really changed in American culture just in the past twenty years. Uh, I would say absolutely. It's like the, <clears throat> it's so, it's just a part of our, uh, part of our American landscape. So that's these good, days. good for business, but good for your soul. I imagine it's it, it's a mixed blessing. I would say. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's 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 such a uh, very human thing to do it's almost like primordial to mark yourself like that and um to have it be part of 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 our everyday life for most americans uh is it takes it to to higher levels into new places where it would you know was it it was not 25 years ago Mm um so yeah it's changed it's changed a lot yeah are there cities that are known for their tattoo culture? Is, is Austin one of them? Austin is definitely one of them. Austin is, I'd put money on it. It's probably up there. It, you know, all big cities have a certain tattoo culture, but Austin seems to, I think, probably has the finest one in the country. Um, what makes it stand out? Uh, I think it's the the, the weather's so nice that, <laughs> that <laughs> you, see people, you see it a lot. So you go to the HEB or your waiter has tattoos and, oh, where did you get that? And you, you just, it just, it's a self-perpetuating art form almost because people have it in it. And, and with the increased popularity of it that has come from so many places um, that people who might not normally you know 20 years ago we would never even have necessarily crossed their minds maybe mm-hmm. some kind of wild thought but <clears throat> but now it's just like oh hmm 
oh, that's pretty. You can do that. Or, mm-hmm. oh, that's cool. You could do that. And I, so, yeah. I like that you are reminding us that what an ancient uh, tradition this is and, and how it really is something that comes from deep within primordial was the word you used. Can you talk about that a little bit more and how that connects to your work up with the Haida and uh, the other First Nations tribes up in uh, <coughs> uh, British Columbia, Canada? Hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of ethnographic history. Uh, there should be more, but you know, history is not um, uh, the history. Most of the history that we have of mankind is about rich people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not about mm-hmm. poor and indigenous people. You know, they were that was not recorded. They were for other. Nobody cared about poor people, or mm-hmm. but but with the. Once again, the increase in popular tattooing is that we have a lot more academic research that's going on into the history of tattooing, and and there's just all kinds of like amazing things that are coming to light. How it was just a global th- uh, thing, you know? Um, I would say art form because it wasn't necessarily an art form. It's hmm. it it's just a, ma- a about marking yourself. Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> so so it's a global, we'll just call it a global art. So mm-hmm. global art and in uh, indigenous cultures, uh, just so just narrow it down to North America, um, there are well, a number of native groups across North America that had, you know, different levels of artistry, I would say, artistry, artistry, uh, <laughs> that went into the tattooing. And one of them in particular, probably the most tattooed natives in North America were the Haida, which is who live uh, to this day in Haida Gwaii, or which is formerly known as the Queen Charlotte Islands, which is about 60 miles off of the west coast of northern British Columbia. Um, <clears throat> and they're there are some ethnographic reports with drawings uh, from the 1870s, I think, that show Haida men and women with these, you know, quite extensive uh, crest tattoos. They would have them on their chest or their arms, their legs, their backs, um, some's in their faces. Um, there's not a lot of, not a lot out there, so you can kind of extrapolate mm-hmm. from the few uh, literary sources that there are. Uh, and also there are, uh, with this increase in uh, academic research into it, um, they're uncovering more and more f- uh, photographs mm. that were taken around the turn of that of the uh, 19th century. And so your study of that has allowed you to not only deepen your appreciation and understanding, but also carry on a trend, uh, help carry on a legacy. Y- yeah, when I when I first went to Haida Gwaii, um, I, I didn't know. I, I was completely ignorant of, of what the state of of uh, the people were I thought they were all just one people from one end of from Alaska down to Washington which of course is a complete gross misunderstanding and a mistake on my part <clears throat> but also I didn't know that if I, I knew about their tattoo traditions um, and I had gone to the University of Texas well the the library at the UT and and gotten out the old ethnographic journals to study it up before I went thinking that you know I would find this some dying bastion of or you know of this art and well once I finally figured out how to get there which took a few years <laughs> at that point in time I discovered that it the nobody had been tattooed there for over a hundred years <clears throat> but 
what I did discover was that uh, so the first first time I went there to Masset, which is the village uh, there, I spent basically a week in a little motel tattooing because they just had gone crazy for it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I was there, and they just kept me working, 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 working. But the third person that I tattooed there uh, was uh, was Joyce, and Joyce has since the they're my family there. Mm-hmm. She's like my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, um, and I saw a tattoo Joyce and she didn't have any tattoos, but she wanted this big crest of dogfish on the side of her leg, which her gr- great grandmother, uh, Isabella Edenshaw, I believe had as a wow. tattoo. Right. And so, and then she told me, she was telling me the story about when she was a little girl that she, the traditions, the funerary traditions, were that the, the, uh, the women would would bathe and dress the body, and the men would make the the coffin. Um, and she remembers being a little girl participating in this with her. I think it was her grandmother, right. and that she saw her grandmother's tattoos that she never wow. knew that she had. So that was the thread mm-hmm. that was still existent. It was a memory. It was a wow. living memory, and. Um, and that was pretty exciting mm-hmm. it, unto itself. And um, and then by going back repeatedly year after year after year and becoming much more accepted um, and being asked to do bigger and, and bolder things was helping um, in a professional way give them access to a revitalization of their of their tattoo tradition. Mm-hmm. So we I started to do you know crest tattoos, a, mo- a modern version of it um, on in the places that they traditionally would have had them of their family crests so which is pretty amazing that's so um, neat so every summer you can't get a tattoo with Bart because he's he's up in Canada all summer long that's working pretty much on this. it but yeah. now my, since my daughter lives there and tattoos there <laughs> yeah. um, the heat's off a little bit but I'll still be up there enjoying the cool weather instead so yeah um, so most tattoos, I imagine, have a story behind them, a reason to be... No. No? <laughs> no. Some are pretty random? <clears throat> no. Well, of course, those ones that we're talking about do, because, you know, those are the crests, so it's a, say it's a wolf or, and a bear or an octopus. Like, those are crests that you're, belong to your family. They define your family. So, of course, those ones have a, have a, a like a mythological story with them as well but it's just as far as coming into the shop here on South Congress <laughs> and getting a tattoo sometimes you just say you lose a bet well I guess that's a story <laughs> I was right? going to say is there an alcohol ratio to that <laughs> well, to, to less of a story more alcohol <clears throat> alcohol definitely uh, makes for some interesting uh, decisions yeah um, <laughs> you know we try to is a fine line between you know if you're drunk we, we of course we we won't tattoo you yeah um but a little liquid courage sometimes goes a long way. But but that tends to not be coloring your choices as much. So, right? so do people though open up though to you yeah. when they, when they're getting? I mean, you you got a lot of one on one time that you're dealing with someone. Uh, do they open up about like here's why I'm doing this? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you just have to ask, like because it's like what's up with this? And um, and of course there are many many stories. What I jokingly say, not necessarily. It's, I think most tattoos do have some kind of some kind of significance to the to the person getting them 
um, but they can just be decorative or silly, right? And but but yeah, there's just like Addie just I tattooed her, and it was for a tattoo for her grandmother because she loved wiener dogs, right? That's so true. Yeah, she's it's a little dachshund wearing a pearl necklace. Yeah, it's very sweet, adorable. But oh, you know, I by the time I was done getting that tattoo, I had cried, which is what I do a lot. But um, it's almost like a therapy office when you walk in there. But there's a lot of camaraderie between you and all the artists. And can you talk about how that's special or unique, and how how you've been intentional about creating that it's kind of it's traditionally a bit of a tough business to be in um it did not necessarily uh attract the the most savory members of our of of our societies um which was kind of half of the fun of it you know back when it was very subculture Mm -hmm. um but I think when we opened the shop, we saw... It, it, this was also kind of how I was taught that we, we were trying to take tattooing out of <clears throat> out of that subculture, that macho, um, part-ass, biker... Uh, we were trying to raise it up into to be more of an art form so that it got the respect that we all felt that it did. And so in, the, in doing that at our shop, you know, we've... Try tried to find people. Well, it's it's like a band, right? That that you can be a great player, like and be just shred. But if you don't get along with everybody, and you can't travel well together, you just you don't want it's you in the band, work. right? Yeah. It's not going to work. So <clears throat> it's like that with our, with us there because we spend so much time together, mm-hmm. and we're in such close proximity that that I've been. Um, I have to get it. I've got a good vibe from the guys when they start working there and 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 we've had people that have leave but for the most part the, these guys have been with me forever because the, it's like family for, we just they're good people mm-hmm. right they have good hearts they love what they do um they love the challenges that every day brings to them yeah. um and honestly I pretty much everybody there would do just about anything for one another. Yeah. Where do we put the bodies? <laughs> <laughs> I know people ask you a lot, like, you know, what's the weirdest tattoo you've ever done or what's the most, you know, funniest and most unusual. I'll ask you this instead. Have you ever been blown away by by who came in the door? Like uh, the most surprising person that's come through the door to get a tattoo? Well, it's always when you get somebody that's like really old is always like, whoa. Um, I remember not that long ago. <clears throat> excuse me. We had a, a gal come in who had her mom with her, um, who was dying, literally. I mean, like it looked like it could have happened wow. any day now. And, and her and her mom came to get a tattoo together, and it was so touching, right? But it's so sweet. Um, you know, people ask, like, well, celebrities. And, um, you know, we get a fair number of, like, Austin people. But I think the day that Johnny Depp came in was probably, like, that was a that photo is hanging on your mirror. Memorable, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Came in handy in my grandmother's hospital in Canada too. Yeah, so oh. it's like, oh, Johnny Depp and your grandson was like, whoa, you get extra Jello. Well, um, Bart, uh, thank you so much for all you've done to foster this Austin spirit and uh, and educate us about tattoos. This has really been enlightening. Thank you. Thanks, Eddie. Michelle Breyer used to work at The Statesman as a business reporter before she co-founded NaturallyCurly.com. We caught up with her on her huge success and her new book. 
So thanks for coming back to the Statesman, Yay! Michelle. <laughs> um, how long has it been since you worked here? Um, since 2005, which is just crazy. Wow, but yeah. Naturally Curly is celebrating 20 years. Crazy. So yeah. you uh, you have curly hair. I'm looking at your gorgeous locks. I have curly right hair. Right back at you. We can bond over yeah. the fact yeah. that we've got <laughs> curls. Yeah. But when you started this site in the 90s, what was the landscape? What, what resources were available for people with curly hair? How did we talk about curly hair then? We we didn't talk about it. Or if we talked about it, it was all in negative terms. Like it was it was really not something that people wanted or knew how to deal with. And you would go to the store and there was like the general market section of the hair care aisle, which was like... At this point, it had moved beyond like long and silky and short and sassy, but it was pretty much that was what was there. And then there was the ethnic aisle, which was primarily relaxers. And then there was this huge market of people that was in between that were like, "What? What about us? Hello!" And that and that market of people is like sixty five percent of the population. What? Wait, are you telling me sixty five percent of the population has curly hair? Or they have some form of, t- of yeah, texture in their hair. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Wow. I'm telling you that. That's amazing. Yes, and and that's what your site set out to do was just explore the many, many layers and different corners of this curly-headed universe, which well, is not, it's just not one-dimensional. And I, I will say we didn't even set out to do anything. Like, when we started it, it was like, let's put up information that we want for ourselves. Like, let's go and buy a bunch of products that may be good for curly hair and write about them. Let's have people sim- send us their stories. Mm. And we had, like, an old-fashioned, like, discussion, bo- you know, forum yeah. where people could ask questions. And they would tell us, like, hey, it'd be great if you do this. It'd be great if you do that. And we came up with a texture typing system that was kind of a variation on Oprah's hairstylist's, um, you know, o- Android Walker. He had this, you know, one, two, three, four. One is straight. Two is wavy. Three is curly. And four is coily. So we took variations on that. And so we always talked in terms of texture type and so our audience came from so many different backgrounds and you know they were some some with barely wavy hair and some with like you know amazing afros so it was you know from the start really really a a very diverse community and so at what point did you realize that this was going to be not just your next thing but a big thing gosh those um, are probably two different moments yeah i knew that we had something about two years into it, we got a. I, I had an answering machine in the office of my house where I, I w- wouldn't even listen to it that often, but I happened to see it blinking. And I, answering machines are so retro, but I, like I went and pushed it, and it was like, "This is so and so. I'm a marketing director at Procter and Gamble, and we're launching a product for curly hair, and we'd like to advertise on your site." And it was, you know, and when I talked to him, he said, "You know." we want to pay this amount, which was so far beyond anything that we thought. I mean, it's not much in today's dollars, but considering what we had, Mm -hmm. and I mean, it was a lot of money. It was in the thousands per month Mm -hmm. just to advertise this new product. And I think we started seeing we may be on to something. And that was the tip of the iceberg. Then suddenly there was all these companies started coming up with products for curly hair. And, you know, then there were the products that were being created by people with curly hair who were dissatisfied with what was out there. Mm -hmm. So they were mixing stuff up in their kitchens. And, you know, so all this was kind of happening all at once. And I think we started to realize that we were kind of at the center of that. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the... That's when you made the leap to do it full time. No, it took a while. I think I think we we started an e-commerce site because a brand came to us and and they wanted to sell and they said, you know, do you have one? And 
my co-founder, uh, Gretchen Heber, who is technical, you know, like she actually knows how to make computers do things and, you know, software and all that kind of stuff. So we started an e-commerce site and the weekend we launched, we had two brands that we were carrying on the site. It was like a big leap of faith. And we were quoted in the New York Times style section, the Sunday style section. And it was like something out of a movie where, you know, every order that would come in would make a little bing on the computer. And all of a sudden it was like, bing, 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 bing. <laughs> and we were just like, holy crap, like what is going on here? And I think that was kind of the, the moment. And then it still took time for us to like cut the cord and say, I think it was, you know, a matter of having kids, um, working our day jobs, and then having a job that was becoming a bigger and bigger job. Mm-hmm. And so there was never any time. Like it was like 80 hours a week working and something was going to give. And either we say, okay, no, like stop naturally curly because we can't handle it or that's got to be our full, full-time venture. And I think we knew we were onto something and we just decided to jump off the cliff and well, bravo go for it. Yeah. Because it <laughs> it's never easy. No. And so, you know, fast forward now a decade and change and you just came out with a book that compiles a lot of the information that's available on the site. Just, you know, just tips and resources for how to, you know, I mean, that's what's interesting thing about hair is that like I know my curls better than anybody will know my curls. Yeah. And I know what I feel, not that I know everything there is to know about the products that are out there, what my hair needs, but it's such, it's, I can imagine how difficult it must have been to write a book for the 65% of the population, even though everybody has such different needs and different wants. Um, what are some of the reactions that you are hearing from people either on the book tour or maybe in just in comments on the site about what happens when they discover that there's this community out there of people who just are celebrating every aspect of curly hair. Well, I think it was so amazing because the book tour took me to a lot of different places like Toronto and L.A., Baltimore, Miami, and each one, people, this incredibly inclusive community of people, you know, old, young, black, white, Hispanic, um, all different texture types were sharing stories about not only their own, you know, kind of heart heartache because of their hair and their journey to accept their hair, but like how Naturally Curly had changed their life, which mm-hmm. was just an amazing thing. You know, like just like you have no clue what something you've done has done to help make somebody's life better. Like mm-hmm. in one case, I found my stylist who who finally made me feel good about my hair. She gave me a haircut that actually worked for my curls, and that was life-changing. Or um, somebody who was trying to make the leap from relaxers to their natural texture. And in their family and their community, that was not accepted. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you did not do that. And yet she found this huge community of people who were doing that, and it inspired her to you know, cut off her relaxer and go natural. And that, wow. that was the, like, that that was a pretty amazing thing. That's the hard thing for people who don't have curly under, hair to understand is just how different you feel, especially, you know, I was growing up in the 90s where, yeah, everybody was, or in the 80s when everybody was perming their hair, but it was also not, I mean, I wore my hair in a ponytail every single day of high school because I was ashamed of having different hair. Yeah, yeah. And so just what you're talking about, just this, um, that you, culturally we are accepting more differences in each other, not just hair of all kinds of ways, but you were just telling me a story off mic about how there still is some curly hair uh, oh, yeah. discrimination going on. Yeah, there was, um, I have all these little spies around the world who like, well, you know, email me on LinkedIn or whatever and uh, 
share little stories or people they've met that they think I should know. In one case, this woman's like, oh, my God, you wouldn't believe this podcast I was I was listening to. I'm a human resources manager, and it was all human resources people talking. And the topic was, would you hire somebody who came to the interview with their hair curly? Like, basically, that and, – and she said and the, the weirdest thing was that there were so many people who were saying, no, I would – like, I have – I have curly bias. Like if I see someone with curly hair, that makes me think all these things about them. Number one, they didn't take the time to do their hair, you know, to do their hair as in like straighten their hair or that they must be messy or they're, you know, wild or they're irresponsible. Like all these judgments made because somebody comes into a job interview with their hair curly. So I was uh, telling you about how I have a lot of people who are like, oh, it must be such a nice feeling. Like basically you fixed, helped fix the curly, you know, community. And then now everybody loves curly hair. And that's absolutely not true. Like I feel like every time you hear a good story about how accepted, then you hear something else where you're like, oh, my God, we've got so much to yeah. do. <laughs> what um what are you feeling encouraged about like young especially maybe young women or little girls in this country today with their curls and their confidence? Well, Have my, you noticed a shift? Well, totally. Like my daughter uh, when she was young, she's 17 now, but when she was young, uh, I think she did this just to make me angry anyway, but she would when I would take her to get her hair cut and the stylist would come up and say, "What do you want me to do? I I want you to straighten my hair." And that went on for years and in middle school, she would flat iron her hair. And now it's like she is all about, you know, my curls are, you know, my thing. And that's, you know, what makes me what I am. And, you know, bring me a deep conditioner from work because I want to, my my curls aren't as bouncy as they, you know, like she just, having curly hair is a huge part of her identity. Yeah. And I think um, younger women now, and I don't, I don't want to say every place, but in pockets, they really are all about individuality Mm -hmm. and being unique and what makes them unique and not wanting to look like everybody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think that's every place because I'm sure there's a lot of high schools where it really is. And I hear from people, I hear from teenagers about the pressure to flat iron their hair and the pressure to look like everybody else. But I think there's definitely a movement of of young women who are embracing who they are in every way, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that's like the texture of their skin Mm Or, or how they want to dress, or whatever it is, they they're owning their you know what makes them them special. Yeah, oh, you're you're singing my singing my song. <laughs> uh, Michelle interviewed me right after I did what not to wear many yeah. oh, ten years ago uh, when because they straightened my hair and that was the only time I cried in that whole experience was because they you know I I looked which in, still amazes me. I looked yeah. in the mirror or I looked at, it was a reflection in a window actually because they didn't want you to see yourself in the mirror and I saw myself with straight hair and I felt crushed because I had just ex- just embraced the fact that I had curly hair and it was just part of me and yeah. you know you can't there every, I think every person has this moment where they realize that either they're going to fight with themselves over whatever they don't like about themselves yeah. or they're just going to learn how to accept it and yeah. just, and wear it with pride and I had just done that within the past, you know, few years before the show. And then, um, but that was also an eye-opening time for me that I will never straighten my hair again. That was the last time I straightened my hair. Well, you know, we had a lot of people on our site who talked about Japanese straightening. And that that's, it's different than the Brazilian blowout type of straightening. But Japanese straightening was a trend where it was a chemical that literally, you know, took every curl out of your hair. And you couldn't curl it. You couldn't get any texture out of it. Like that, once you mm-hmm. did that, it was like bone straight. And we had a lot of women who said that was the first moment they appreciated their curly hair because 
they realized how like having that volume and that texture like they look they liked the way they look with that and suddenly they had this hair that didn't go with their face or who they were and mm-hmm. and then they had to wait for it to grow out because mm-hmm. it doesn't like it de- the hair that it's not something that becomes curlier over time it's that hair changed. is like that was straight forever so it was kind of a good thing for them in a way because it was like okay I never want to do that again and now I appreciate my hair The busiest supermarket in Austin this month has been the newly opened H Mart near Lakeline Mall. Austin food blogger Peter Sai joined us to explain what all the hype is about. Peter, thank you so much for coming down to the Statesman to talk to us about H Mart. Oh yeah, thank so you. You went for, you went for the first time this weekend, which was the second weekend that it was open. Right, and but you said I, it was still pretty busy. It was crazy packed. I was exasperated by the amount of people there, and I thought about going to the food court later, but the lines were so long, I just said, nope. So put this into context for us. What does H Mart opening in Austin and subsequently here in a, a week or so, a 99 Ranch Market, what does that mean about what's going on in the city and our enthusiasm for food? I think it means that we've made it as a food city, at least as an Asian food destination, because for a long time in Austin, a lot of people of Asian descent um, lamented that there weren't that many great food options in terms of restaurants and groceries. But now that two of the largest grocery chains for Asian food are arriving in Austin, that speaks to the population growth in Austin and the uh, selection of foods that you can get. Because uh, in addition to the groceries, they have tons of food in the food court Mm -hmm. and lots of interesting options. And we have more and more people getting interested in Asian food and we'll presumably have more uh, Asian restaurants opening up. Now you were telling us that you, you're from Atlanta, and there's four of them there, which yeah. I'm like, I think we could use four of them. <laughs> Based on the lines I've seen, I think four would be fine for Austin. Yeah, it's crazy. My mom lives five minutes from one, and then there's two more within a 10-mile radius, so she could just take her pick of you're, places to go. She's living the dream. But you're, you <laughs> yeah, grew up going to 99 Ranch Market, though, more, more so than H Mart. Yeah, um, so I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, where there's a huge Asian population compared to Austin. It's more akin to Houston or Dallas in terms of uh, the population. So we've been going there um, for years. And before that, I grew up in Tennessee, and we would drive four hours to Atlanta just to buy Asian groceries from the, uh, from uh, from Atlanta. And we would drive down in the morning, stock up the minivan, and eat eat dinner, and then drive back. Wow. So yeah. Addie's been to, to H Mart. I went to a- I played hooky on a Friday and <laughs> afternoon and went. Yeah. And what struck me apart from just oh my God, Korean barbecue, I got to eat, Yeah, uh, was the number of families that were there. It wasn't just, you know, like you go to most Austin supermarkets, you see a lot of hipsters and a lot of young people. Like this was whole families mm-hmm. there eating together which on a Friday afternoon, which is awesome. Right. It seems like more of an event because they have the food hall there and they have the live music and they have a bar and they have so many different kinds of food. And then I saw tons of families there as well. I think it's just fun because there's so many different things and it's kind of like, one section of Epcot World Mm -hmm. and Disney World because there's so many different uh, Korean and Asian products, Mm -hmm. not only food, and a lot of exotic things like you got the the octopus (laughs) and people were a little... perplexed and and interested but scared of it, right? Yeah, well, and that's, um, you know, walking around the store, I've had my kids with me, and we love going to international markets. We I did a story a few years ago where I went to 
pretty much all of them. And there were something like 35. And, and, you know, at that time I was struck by, you know, we do have a lot of options when it comes to international groceries. Um, but there's something different about H Mart and 99 Ranch Market, which I went to in California just a couple of weeks ago, where they feel they feel very modern and they feel very, you know, on the cutting edge of food trends. They've got at 99 Ranch Market, they have meal kits and they've got, you know, packaging that looks like you're in Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that was when my that was my aha moment. Like, oh, OK, this is not just a small mom and pop family shop that, you know, they import. They have an importer. I mean, this is like a supply. They have a supply chain of their own um, that I think makes it so that they can have, you know, a strong house brand and they can have the freshest seafood and meat that I've ever seen. Right. So, so those are some of the things that stand out for me. Um, even though I can get some of these products in other places, just the way that they're presented, the way they're sold and the quality seems really high. Right. And in the seafood section itself, they have really fresh sashimi. Mm-hmm. I bought some uni there. Mm-hmm. That was like, you don't really see that anywhere. Yeah. Um, the meat section, they have so many different cuts and varieties of meat and pre-marinated like brigogis and yeah. garbies and the stuff. organic beef. I was like, yes, <laughs> yeah. all about that. Yeah. So it's like more of an event. And then they have the prepackaged foods. I bought a ton of that to take home oh, as well. Man. So I've been eating Asian food for the last three days. We were also talking, Addie and I, uh, we, we just published a review from Matthew Odom of, of, a, of was it Charm? Charmed, yeah. Charmed mm-hmm. Barbecue. Yeah. Um, it feels like I mean, I have a f- I have a friend from uh, who's Korean who visited last year Austin, and we were lamenting the lack of good Korean barbecue options in Austin. Like, oh, we're gonna have to go to San Antonio or somewhere else. Right now, it feels like we're sort of having a moment where there's now decent Korean barbecue options in town. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Charm, you you got to bring your stomach because you, you're paying like twenty five dollars there, but <laughs> <laughs> there's like what twenty kinds of meat you can eat wow. for one, the price of one. I will uh, try them meal. all. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So lastly, Peter, uh, when we first met, we were both really active in uh, what is now the Austin Food Blogger Alliance. You're on the board now. Yes. And so you've been writing and blogging about food for a long time in the city. You know, outside of even just this conversation about HMART, what other things have you noticed? You know, what are your impressions on how food has changed in the past decade here? Oh, uh, it's changed a lot. When I first came here, it was mostly just barbecue and Tex-Mex, and that's all Austin was known for. It wasn't really known as an international food city. I mean, there were pockets here and there, but like for Asian Americans, we were always a little sad, especially if you move from a larger city, that there weren't the food options that there were before. Um, uh, My family is Taiwanese, and we had Coco's and uh, tapioca house on the drag and that was about it <laughs> uh, but within the last 10 years there have been uh, many other uh, Taiwanese restaurants open up and the same has gone for uh, Korean food as well and so because we were exchanging messages online you drive also from South Austin yes to go I north. do I know. <laughs> your wife is Korean and yeah. this is a, a, we- a weekly or every other week you know yeah, I usually have to go up to North Lamar to get mm-hmm. our grocery fix. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I might go up to H Mart now just because of the selection there. And uh, just it's a fun place to be. And they have a lot more selection than other places. I was telling you earlier that it's kind of like the IKEA of Asian food, where it's a exhausting experience. There's tons of selection. You can get lost in there. It's like a maze. And there's like little kids running around and bumping into your carts. But in the end, it's all worth it because you can get some really great stuff there. And find some inspiration for the kitchen. That's what I walked out of that store being stoked to come home and cook, which is always a good feeling. Well, the food court was like a three and a half hour experience for me. (laughs) But like, that's sort of a good thing. It shows that there's a demand. It shows that there is a community and people that want this and like, hey, why don't you open up a second store? Because like, it's, it's gonna, not going to keep up with all the people that want all this food and, and groceries. Yeah, and it's really cool in Austin. I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for new experiences. So seeing the community, not only the Asian-American community, but 
just Austin as a whole wanting to go check out this new place and support it. It's really cool to see. That's so neat. Thank you so much for coming in, Peter. Uh, listeners, if you want to check out all of his food adventures, you can find him at SuperSci on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. for a toast, the part of the show where we recommend things you should be checking out right now. Uh, Tali Mosley, want to get us started? Sure. So last week I saw the movie Call Me By Your Name and uh, directed by Luca Gardanino. I hope I'm... Grazie. (laughs) (laughs) My Italian is subpar. So this movie is getting a lot of buzz. The um, lead, Timothy... Gosh, I don't even know how to say his last name. Grazie. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the lead has been nominated for an Oscar. He stars alongside Arnie Hammer. And it's just a really visually sumptuous movie. It takes place in northern Italy in the early 80s. Um, The period dress has a really light touch. You can just tell that they're in the 80s, but they're not like rocking neon orange Reeboks or anything. Um, And so it has the movie has kind of a timeless quality. And this isn't really giving anything away, but it's a you can tell in the previews. It's a love story between uh, the two male leads. But that is like just that happens almost in passing, Mm -hmm. you know. And so it's really refreshing to see a love story where that is that component is almost taken for granted. Mm And what is really the focus of the movie is how love is transient and it can come into your life and then it leaves and you see this young boy dealing with that loss. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a little bit of societal pressure there. Um, But another wonderful aspect of the movie is that he has these two incredibly supportive parents. Mm -hmm. So even that hallmark that we've come to expect of you know, movies with um, uh, an LGBTQ component, even that is removed, too. Mm-hmm. It's like it's really just about love and all of its many forms. I love it. It feels like yeah. we're ready for that level of conversation about, you know, not making it so that the whole movie is around that. the tension between coming out to his parents or no, something. No, yeah. no. It really, it really isn't about coming out at all. It's just, I mean... It could have easily been a, um, a movie between two straight characters mm-hmm. with just as much power. It really is about someone coming into your life briefly and then they have to go mm. away and the pain of that. Ooh. So it's so good. Um, I recommend it to everyone. I think Eric Webb has seen it three times. It's a movie that I – it's the, one of the first movies I've seen in a while that I thought I would willingly go back right now and see it again. Nice. Fantastic. Uh, all right. I guess I'll go. Unless you want to arm wrestle. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Hattie Bryles. So Jess Bryles is a local author. Uh, she got her start. Actually, we met a long time ago when she was still living in Australia. She's an Aussie who has always loved Texas, and she ran a bakery there. And she and Sugar Mama uh, over at Olivia, yeah. they used to do an exchange where they would each go to each other's shop for a week. And so eight, ten years ago, that's when I first met her, when she would come here and be like a guest baker. But then she pivoted to meat and really got interested in understanding more about how to cook meat and how to understand the different cuts in the grocery stores and how not to overcook your steak. And and it started out as a blog called BurgerMary.com. And um, over the course of the past, I don't know, five years, she's really worked on getting her um, the proper paperwork and visas to come here. So now she lives in Austin uh, full time and she has become one of the state's foremost experts in all things meat. And she has her debut cookbook that's coming out uh, the, uh, right now. Um, it's called Hardcore Carnivore. And it's just a really good cookbook. I mean, 
mean, I write about cookbooks a lot for the Statesman, and uh, it's hard to find one that really speaks to you on, I don't know, without dumbing things down, but without also going over your head. And I don't know about you guys, but meat, I mean, I eat meat and I have my whole life, but it's still kind of intimidating to figure out how to cook the different cuts and does lamb cook different than beef and pork and pulling it and smoking it and all those things. So Jess really breaks it down in a, a very easy to understand way. Lots of great recipes and tutorials. So and I'm sorry, where did you say she's from, Addie? She's from Australia. She's from Australia. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. right. Oh, my gosh. Okay, in that so, case, yeah. I know Jess from way back way in back. the day. Yeah. So That's she awesome. does a lot of great content online. So you can just Google Jess Pryle. She, um, she actually sells, this is my best tip. Maybe you don't like to cook even that much, but you want to improve your, just your, well, Basically, she sells a steak rub that's called Hardcore Carnivore that you sprinkle onto a steak and then you sear it. And it's really, it has activated charcoal in it. So it's dark and it helps you not overcook the steak. Because most of us, are mm. we overcook steaks because we're trying to get the sear on the outside and make it look all crusty. This helps it both in, in its texture and its flavor. It seasons it really well. And its and presentation. Can, and presentation. So you can yeah. buy that online and in, in stores. It's called Hardcore Carnivore, but that's also the name of her book. So, nice. way to go, Jess. Thanks, Jess. I, I need that because I'm, I have a family that will refuses to eat any meat that's pink. Oh, no. So I'm constantly <laughs> overcooking everything. <laughs> to get it well, quote, air quotes, well done. <laughs> <laughs> quote, flavorless. <laughs> so, anyway. All right, Omar, what are you into right now? Uh, well, if you are a parent with kids on Netflix, you oh, you reach that saturation point where it's like, it feels like they've seen everything on Netflix. They've seen all the movies. And then you're you're down to like the B and C class of like, <laughs> wait, that's a movie? Wait, wh- wh- I, why have I never heard of that that's not Disney um, so I we've hit that point where my kids have seen all the animated series they're going to want to watch all the Disney movies all the Pixar stuff all the DreamWorks stuff so we're down to like the lower tiers of like the oh it kind of sounds like like Moana but it's not Moana it's something else uh, I they were like what are we going to watch dad so I'm like oh, struggling like scrolling down that list like please let me find something that's not terrible that I have to sit through and I took a chance on one called Revolting Rhymes which is based on the Roll Doll uh, kind of mashup of fairy tales, and it, it I stumble on gold, people. I totally <laughs> had a win for dad on this, this one. This is awesome. It is beautiful and wonderful, and and I had read vaguely from the back of my mind, seen a review of it or something saying, "Oh, this is coming to Netflix. You should check it out. It's really good." It was so good, you guys. Is it British? Like what studio? It's a British, made this? German, okay. um, and it's two parts. It's it's two episodes. And it was actually nominated. I found this out after the fact. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Short. Wow. Um, but it actually plays out like a, like a 30-minute TV show in two parts. Uh, it's so good. Dominic West, uh, McNulty from The Wire, it narrates it as as the wolf. And it mashes up Snow White, Three Little Pigs, and um, Little Red Riding Hood mm. uh, in wow. the first episode. And my kids were just like... Oh, this is going to be terrible. They said words that I shouldn't be saying on the podcast. Like, this is going to suck, Dad. <laughs> and they were, like, completely enchanted. And it's got this very kind of bubbly CGI style. It's not super photorealistic, um, which is a really neat counterpoint to how dark it is. It's actually a very yeah. – most kids' stuff on Netflix, not dark at all, Mm-mm. not not you know very saccharine. This one is actually has some bite to it. So check it out, Revolting Rhymes. I think they just added it to Netflix a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, it's very short. You can get it's just two episodes, twenty eight minutes each, and you can get through it really quickly. Cool. All right. Well, great toast, everyone. That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin three sixty Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin, and talk to us on Twitter at Love Austin three sixty. 
I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from features editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listener, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your high-flying kites. Until next week, we'll see you soaking up the spring sun at Silker Park. Mm-hmm.